Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And while you're doing that, I'd like for you to turn your imaginations on with me for just a moment. And think about a time in your life, it's likely a time in your childhood, where, where you did just something ridiculously dumb. Maybe you were trying to impress your friends. Maybe the pressure of having to make a split-second decision uh, in that circumstance you made a dumb decision. Perhaps you were just being a kid and made a dumb decision. But think about whatever time that was. And think about the moment you turned and looked at your parent and you got the look. You know what I'm talking about. And, and for those times that we're forced to gaze intently in our parents' eyes at the look, we can almost see with our eyes the thoughts going on in our parents' mind as they think, what did I do wrong as a parent that would cause my child to do that? The look communicates many things without a single spoken word. On your very worst of days, have you ever considered how the Lord Jesus might be looking at you? Is it a look of disbelief? A look that says, I am surprised that you would act in such a way. Is it a look of disgust? A look that says, I am repulsed and offended and, and you should be ashamed. Is it a look of cold indifference? A look that says, I just can't take it anymore. You're on your own. Is it a look of condescension? A look that says, I taught you and you know better. Is it a look of harshness? Today we're looking at a very well-known passage of Scripture. We're looking at Peter's threefold denial of Jesus. We're looking at what we could call Peter's worst day. A day where he receives a look from Jesus. But it's a day and a look that I believe will give us much hope. It's a day that led Peter to ultimately writing this statement. For Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God. Our primary text is in Luke 22, beginning in verses 54. Now before we dive into this text, uh, let's back up. So if you're in Luke 22, go ahead and turn to verses 28 through 34. Um, we're going to uncover a little bit of the context uh, so we can rightly understand the events that unfold. Um, the disciples are with Jesus. They had just taken the first Lord's Supper. And then Jesus tells them this, starting in verse 28. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, in the original language, that you is actually a plural. And so what Jesus is essentially saying is, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. Jesus is telling the disciples that all of you will be greatly tested tonight. Satan is going to try and overthrow your faith tonight. Satan is going to attempt to bring you to spiritual ruin tonight. But Jesus says, and, and this time turning directly to Simon, also known as Peter, talking directly to Peter, but I have prayed for you 
that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. With verse 32, Jesus simultaneously tells Peter that he will fall, he will repent, and he will be restored to the ministry. Brothers and sisters, highlight that, memorize that, underline that, and may it be our souls as those exact events unfold in this grand narrative of redemption. Well, Peter, at this time, I believe forgetting who the man he is speaking to actually is, he makes the quite bold statement, prideful claim. Peter said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Peter makes the bold claim that he will not fall as a result of Satan's temptation, and Jesus doubles down and says, Peter, not only will you not fall once, but you're going to fall three times. Turn now to our primary text, beginning with verses 54. 54. Having arrested him, Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. As we consider this text, the first thing I would like for us to see is the failure of man. The failure of man. It was merely a few hours ago on this night that, that Peter boldly asserted, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And as these events unfold right after Jesus' arrest, where do we find Peter? Peter is following from a distance. All of a sudden, Peter is not so bold. Now, we can give Peter a little bit of credit. After all, at least he is still following from a distance. All the rest of the disciples are nowhere to be seen, with the exception of one other disciple. We don't know with the identity of the other disciple with certainty, but we're told in, in John's gospel that there was one other besides Peter at the courtyard. Based on the way John writes, we believe it was probably him, but we don't know with complete certainty. But before we look at Peter's failure, we can at least acknowledge that he was there at least. Now, I think it might be likely that he was there simply because of the promise he had made to Christ a few hours earlier. He wanted to make good on his promise. He was trying to follow Jesus. And yet we can at the same time clearly see that the further you are from Jesus, 
the easier that temptation to sin will come. Peter was trying to follow Jesus according to his own strength, according to his own power, and he had been trying to do that all night. Before these events unfolded, the disciples were at the Garden of Gethsemane, and and specifically, Jesus had taken with him his inner circle, right? Peter, James, and John. This is just after Jesus had told them that Satan would greatly test their faith tonight. Jesus asked them, keep watch, keep alert. Peter, James, and John, while I pray, I want you to keep watch. And of course, we know what happens next. After Jesus returns from praying, he finds his disciples sleeping. Rather than praying that they would not fall into the snares of the devil, they're sleeping. And Peter enters the courtyard in a most vulnerable position, trying to follow Jesus in his own strength. Well, the people in the courtyard, they started this fire, and the people started to gather around it, Peter included. Now you can imagine this scene, it's, it's the middle of the night and the fire is the primary source of light. And we read of this servant girl looking intently at him. Through the blaze and the glows of the fire and moonlight, she is studying Peter. She's looking at him closely and carefully before she speaks. She has a strong inclination that this man probably doesn't belong here. And she's looking at him intently and she said, this man was with him too. And Peter, who has been trying to follow Jesus according to his own strength all night, fails for the first time. He denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. This is a far cry from the Peter who in Matthew 16 proclaimed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's a far cry from the Peter in John 6 who proclaimed, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's a far cry from the Peter who promised to follow Jesus to prison and even to death. He doesn't merely deny being his disciple or follower, he denies knowing him. A short time later, another accusation is made. We could look at this as another opportunity for Peter to redeem himself, to speak the truth, to be bold in his witness. The charge is made, you are one of them too, and what does Peter say? Man, I am not. Peter, in denying Jesus, has now sinned against him twice. We read now that about an hour has passed. It's very early in the morning, and a third accusation is made. The charge was stated, certainly this man was with him too, for he also is a Galilean. Oh, they come with a little bit of proof now. Peter, your accent betrays you. Based on the way Peter spoke, it was clear that Peter was from Galilee, which is where most of the disciples came from. And they recognized that something was off with Peter. A game that we might often play with our little kids is, is like, which of these things is not like the other? Well, the eyes of the people in the courtyard were flashing around, and they're like, makes sense, makes sense, makes sense. And then they get to Peter. Doesn't make sense. Peter, you are not like the others. You were with Jesus, too. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crows. Now Luke omits this detail, but but Matthew and Mark both state that Peter began to curse and swear, saying he did not know the man. This, again, from the man who said he would die from Jesus hours earlier. In this story, on this night, Peter denied Jesus immediately. There wasn't the slightest amount of hesitation. And he denied Jesus comprehensively. 
He didn't deny Jesus once or twice, but he denied Jesus three times. First, he said he didn't know Jesus. Then he said he wasn't one of them. And lastly, he pretended not even to know what the people in the courtyard were talking about. Peter's denial of Jesus was a thorough and complete one. And yet, as we read this narrative, we can't throw Peter under the bus because we are Peter far too often. Peter teaches us a lesson here. It's not merely the promises we make to God that count. Our faith must be public. Our witness to the world is the true test of whether we are a disciple of Christ or not. Peter made many bold assertions when he was in a private room with Jesus. Peter confidently expressed trust in Jesus while he was in the presence of the disciples. But he was not yet willing to proclaim it to the world. Instead, all he can say is that he does not know him. And a commentator writes, People make many promises when they are alone with God. Promises about living a better life, spending more time in prayer, or giving more money to charity. But the real test of our discipleship is what we say and do when we are under pressure to take a stand for Christ. What do we say then? Now, I don't have to give you any amount of time to Think about the opportunities you've been given, I've been given. When we haven't, but we should have publicly confessed Jesus. We are all, every single one of us, Peter. We come into this place within the, within the safety of the saints, of the believers, and we confess Christ as Lord, but then we go out into the world, and this world is often a dark and wretched place. This world is a hard place to live in, which we often fail to profess Christ and thereby deny him. If I avoid talking about Christ with my friends out of fear that they may no longer be my friend, then I'm effectively denying Christ. Now, I'm not talking about using wisdom in our conversations. We most certainly do that. But if I flat out avoid the subject, if you flat out avoid the subject, then you are like Peter. Students, if if your life is lived in such a way that your peers at school have no idea that you are a Christian, you're effectively denying Christ. If I prioritize my personal enjoyment or my social acceptance or my standing at work in lieu of standing for Christ, then I am effectively denying him. I'm just like Peter. Unless we speak the truth of what we believe and know to be true about who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we are ourselves deniers of Christ. And to deny Christ is a heinous sin to deny the creator of the universe, to deny the one by whom, through whom, and to whom all things are made. Peter did it, and we do it. And unless Peter's sin, unless our sin is confessed and atoned for, it's damnable. Isaiah tells us, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sin leads to death. It leads to damnation. It leads to hell. Our sin is very great. Indeed, our sin is beyond our comprehension. But as we're going to see next, as great as our sin is, God's mercy is more. The mercy of Jesus Following the third accusation levied against Peter, man, I do not know what you are talking about. 
Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. I have a suspicion that Peter had a profound gratefulness for the sound of the rooster crow for the rest of his life. Roosters can be annoying, and yet it was a rooster that woke Peter up. It was the sound of the rooster that caused Peter's gaze to return to his Lord. It was the sound of the rooster that awoke Peter to the fact that Jesus' words had been fulfilled. He said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow until you have denied three times that you know me. Think about all that's going on in the background. While all of this is going on, we read what is happening to Jesus in verses 63 to 65. As Peter denies him, Jesus has been beaten and mocked. He clearly has a lot going on. And yet when the rooster crows, what do we see Jesus do? Verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Luke is the only gospel writer who includes this detail. It's primarily why I chose Luke's narrative. It's an interesting detail. Out of all of the times in Luke's gospel, at least that I could find, when we see Jesus turn towards someone, he speaks. In Luke chapter 7, we see Jesus turn towards a crowd and speak. In chapter 9, Jesus turns to his disciples and rebukes them. And in chapter 10, he turns and speaks to them. In chapter 14, Jesus turns to the crowd and he spoke. And in Luke chapter 23, moments before he would be nailed to the cross, he turned to a group of women who were mourning and said, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Every time in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus turns towards somebody, he speaks. Except for this one instance. Here in chapter 22. We don't know where Jesus was at at this precise moment, perhaps he was in a room that overlooked the courtyard. Perhaps they were moving him from one place to another. At any rate, Jesus could see Peter. And when that rooster crowed, Jesus turned to Peter and looked. Jesus was being beat. He was being mocked. And what was on his mind? Peter. Have you ever considered the look? that Peter may have seen on his Lord's face? Was it a look of disbelief? Peter, I am surprised that you would act in such a way. Was it a look of disgust? A look that says, I am repulsed and offended, and Peter, you should be ashamed. Was it a look of cold indifference? A look that says, Peter, I just can't take it anymore. You are on your own. Was it a look of condescension? A look that says, Peter, I taught you and you know better. Was it a look of harshness? Peter, I told you so. No. I don't believe it was any of those things. What Peter saw when he gazed into the face of his Lord Jesus Christ was pure and holy love. And it wrecked him. He had sinned against the most holy God, against the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of all things, the creator of himself the one who was and is and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one by whom, through whom, and to whom all things belong, to the only one worthy to receive glory, honor, and praise, that's who he sinned against. And despite the magnitude of his sin, which he understood to be very great, but it was in reality, it was 
even greater than he could begin to comprehend. Despite the magnitude of his sin, when Peter looked at his Lord, he did not see anger or condemnation or disgust or harshness. Those would have all been expected responses for Peter. But instead, Peter saw pure and holy love on his Savior's face, and it wrecked him. And he went out and wept bitterly. When we are consumed by our self-righteousness, when we are consumed by pride, we may be able to comprehend and even desire emotions such as anger, disappointment, hurt, or the smug satisfaction of somebody saying, I told you so. However, when the Lord persists, and looking at us with pure and holy love, it strips away our self-righteousness. It strips away our pride, and it reveals to us the perfect love we have denied, as well as the wretched mess that we are. And it becomes unbearable to witness such pure and divine love from the Lord when we have failed Him so terribly and so comprehensively. We come into this world prideful like Peter. Perhaps some of you in this room continue to boast in your works, in your good deeds. Perhaps you neglect prayer. Perhaps you speak and act too quickly. You're too confident in your abilities. Perhaps you're following Jesus from too far of a distance. These are all failings, weaknesses that Peter exhibited in a matter of a few hours on this night. And yet they were weaknesses that Jesus was already aware of. You see, Jesus was not surprised by the events of this night. Peter was surprised. Jesus was not. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen on that night. Jesus knows our weaknesses. Jesus knows our failings. Jesus knows how we've sinned in the past and how we'll sin in the future. But the good news is he's always had a plan to restore us, to reconcile us with God, and he did not fail. Peter's sins demanded atonement. Our sins demand atonement. Our sins against the holy God demand justice. And on this night, In a matter of a few more hours, Jesus would be hung on the cross. And as Jesus hung on that cross, the sins of all who would believe in him were poured out on him. The Father poured out his wrath for sinners on the substitute. It was poured out on Jesus instead of us to save us from the wrath that we rightly deserved. And when Peter turned to Christ, and when we turned to Christ... Christ declares us forgiven and righteous. So much is communicated in a look. Peter, I believe, expected to see a look of anger, disgust, disbelief, and cold indifference. Instead, he received a look of pure and holy love, a look of mercy, a look of forgiveness, a look that said, Peter, I am going to the cross for you. And friends, when you also turn to Christ, he'll look at you and do the same. Peter went out and wept bitterly, and, and we don't have specifics of what was going on in Peter's mind during that sorrowful state, but I believe they were tears of repentance. 
Remember earlier that night, Jesus told Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I believe these tears that Peter shed were tears of repentance. Peter recognized he had a sin problem, and it grieved him greatly. What we do after recognizing we have a sin problem is of great importance. Will we lash out at others? Will we make excuses in an effort to justify ourselves? Will we blame others? Or will you confess, repent, and turn to the only one who is able to forgive and restore you? The most important thing is not the tears. The most important thing is turning back to Christ. And the next time we see Peter in Luke's gospel, he is running to and marveling at the empty tomb. There's a big difference between the narrative of Judas that we looked at last week and, the, and Peter. Judas may have shed tears. He was certainly remorseful. He had a guilty conscience, but it never turned to repentance. He never turned to Christ, and he died in utter despair. The life of Judas and Peter are similar and yet very different. It's, it's reminiscent of what Paul would later write to the church at Corinth. Paul wrote, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. J.C. Ryle said, Remorse can make a man miserable like Judas, but it can do no more. It does not lead him to God. Repentance, however, makes a man's heart soft and his conscience tender and shows itself in real turning to a father in heaven. Peter repented, turning to his Lord and Savior, and he found forgiveness and he found mercy, but he also found restoration. In John chapter 21, we read this. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love him. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now with this, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus continuing, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now all of this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken all this, he said to them, he said to him, follow me. Jesus fully restored Peter. The man who was fearful of telling the truth to a young slave girl would be calling thousands to repentance and faith. And ironically, and most certainly not in the way that Peter had planned, when Peter boldly declared that he would follow Jesus to prison and even to death, that too eventually came true. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were arrested and, and thrown in jail, and, and they were charged not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus and they responded by saying, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
And in time, Peter was eventually martyred. Peter did exactly what Jesus said he would do. He failed, he repented, and he was restored. I'm going to ask the praise team to go ahead and come up here. I'm going to do things a little bit out of our traditional order. Um, we're going to sing a song, um, and then I'm going to come back and, and speak for just a few more moments to kind of conclude the sermon. But I want to give us some time to consider our sin, to thank God for his mercy displayed to us through his son, and to respond in repentance as necessary. Have you fallen? Are you drowning in the sea of sin? Have you been trying to swim to the surface by your own strength and do you keep getting tossed to and fro by the current of your wretchedness? If you have fallen into sin, it is time for you to repent. Turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Church, stand and sing this with us.